You're listening to TIP. People like to think real estate's passive. Real estate's not passive. When you when you do these deals that are larger, where there's construction, where you're turning around a building, where you're turning over units, where you're increasing the NOI, where you're handling the debt, inv- like it's not passive. It takes a lot of time. In this week's episode, I bring back Axel Ragnarsson to talk all about investing out of state, raising capital for your deals, how to find off-market properties, and much, much more. Axel is an active real estate investor and is based in Boston, Massachusetts. He purchased his first multifamily property during his sophomore year in college, leading to the founding of his real estate investment firm, Aligned Real Estate Partners. Currently, Aligned Real Estate Partners owns approximately $27 million in multifamily real estate and has been the principal party in over $30 million worth of transactions. He is also a founding partner of Blue Door Living, a property management company based in New Hampshire that currently manages over 200 units of small to mid-sized multifamily real estate. Axel is also the host of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Be sure to follow Axel and I on social media, specifically on Twitter and Instagram. He's at Multifamily Wealth, and I am the Robert Leonard. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with fan favorite Axel Ragnarsson. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, we bring back Axel Ragnarsson. Axel, welcome back to the show. Robert, thanks for having me again, man. I'm looking forward to it. I knew that you went through a rebrand of your investment company. So I was digging into the new branding a bit and I was intrigued by your about section because the very first line says, every seasoned investor knows you can't successfully or earnestly invest in real estate while also maintaining full-time employment elsewhere. There are many people who invest successfully in real estate outside of their day job and even reach financial freedom this way. So in this quote, are you referring to running a real estate fund and buying mid to large size apartment buildings? Yes, that's exactly what I'm referring to. And I know that's kind of like a definitely a statement that'll ruffle some feathers, right? And I, as I was creating my website and drafting the language for that, that was certainly something that crossed my mind that I obviously, I invested in real estate while working another job for a short period of time. You know, I was working full-time as a real estate broker for a while. And while I was still in real estate, it was really hard to actively invest in an efficient way. And the story I like to tell is I, I moved to Boston and took a job, uh, just a tech sales job for a startup company. And I was on my third day of training and I was still trying to buy real estate and I was still sending out direct mail while I was doing this. My plan was, all right, I'm going to work this job. But it was a bit more of a demanding gig. It was 65, 70 hour a week type of job. And Wednesday, I got a call at like know, noon or something like that from a seller that received a direct mail piece. And I mean, no joke. I literally got home. It was seven o'clock at night. I saw, you know, listened to his voicemail, gave him a call back. And in the time between noon and seven, he called another investor who sent him a piece of direct mail and accepted an offer from that individual. And it would have been the best deal I've ever done by far. And I think that to further clarify that statement, if your goal is to proactively and quickly build a real estate portfolio and 
not divert time away from your day job, it's extremely difficult to do that. In terms of, for example, sending direct mail, managing intensive business plan implementations where there's a lot of renovation components, a lot of operational changes. If you're working with other people and you're on a, somebody else's schedule, whether it's a partner or whether it's some kind of a investors of some kind, a lot of that is challenging to do with a full-time job. I, that's probably the asterisk there is if you would like to buy a duplex or you know, a couple of properties on an annual basis and it's something where you're scouring the MLS and waiting for that good deal, but you're not doing a lot of the other more business level related activities that actually drive you to buying a piece of real estate. I think that's a little bit more manageable. But in the context of buying larger assets and really, really effectively managing them, it, it requires almost a full-time effort on its own. And it's hard to balance two of those things if you're working a job and doing that at the same time. So people listening to the show who have a W-2 job don't have to run out and give up their dreams on real estate investing. Of course not. And I think if you have a W-2 job and you're in the context of buying, let's say, small multifamilies or some single family properties, and you're investing at a really predictable pace and you're kind of jogging down the road, but you're not sprinting, it would actually be completely unwise to give up your W-2 because it's necessary for lending. You know, In the world that we're playing in where it's all commercial assets, a W-2 doesn't really move the needle. And if you are bankable or not, really definitely moves the needle if you're buying one to four unit residential properties, for example, or you're buying single families or condos or what have you. I've been a full-time real estate investor for seven years. I have a harder time getting a loan on a duplex that I don't occupy than somebody who's just worked the W-2 for the last few years at a, with a predictable income stream. It's the worst idea, honestly, to give up your full-time job if you're getting into real estate because you need that to get loans. But if you're looking to scale a real estate business, and I think that's the context that I'm, I'm speaking in, it's really hard to balance, especially if you have a demanding W-2, something where you're working more than 40 hours a week, which is the situation I was in. And that's the situation I think a lot of folks are in that are trying to get into larger asset types, large multifamily, commercial asset types of other kinds. Doing both of those, you can do it. It's just you're going to be doing both of them a little bit ineffectively or less effectively than you could if you've placed full-time focus on one or the other. I follow a lot of entrepreneurs on Twitter and I saw one tweet, this is probably a couple of months ago now, but he tweeted that it's literally easier for his employees to get mortgages for their houses than it is for him who owns the company, literally owns the company that these employees work for. It's easier for them to get a mortgage than it is for him himself. I'm not surprised whatsoever, especially if you're in a business like real estate, where it's a very lucrative business to participate in as an investor, as the owner of a real estate investment company, whatever your role is, right? But on a tax return level, you're not showing a lot of income because of all the depreciation from the real estate assets, because there's so many deductions that are available to a real estate investor that you know when the bank asks you to send your prior three years tax returns, you're not showing a lot of income there, right? So it's kind of this weird balance where obviously as a business owner, you want to pay the least amount of taxes, you want to bring the most amount home, but it's also you're disincentivized to do that if you want to go out there and get a loan for yourself or a small investment property where you want to get better financing. And I mean, that's a huge component why very early on, I just jumped right to commercial. I was like, this is just not an area that I really want to play in because there's just so much red tape and it's the underwriting process doesn't make any sense from a lender perspective on these smaller deals. But for any business owner, I mean, real estate or otherwise, yeah, it's such an interesting challenge that makes no sense at the end of the day. We're going to talk a bit about that transition and, and a lot more about working with five plus unit deals a little bit later in the show, because that's exactly the point that I'm at in my real estate investing is I, I had just mentioned to you before we started recording that I'm done with four units or less. I'm really going to five units or more. We'll talk about that in a little bit later in the show, but this is your fourth time back on the show. I think you're the first four Pete guest. I think we've had some threes, I'm honored. but I think you're the first four. 
For anybody that's interested, likes this episode, the previous episodes that Axel was on were 6, 53, and 79. During the first episode, you were not investing out of state yet. Then in the second and third episodes, you had started to do it. And now today in the fourth episode, you have a pretty sizable unit count in five different markets across different states. How has the out-of-state investing experience been going for you? Is it easier or harder than you expected? That's a great question. First of all, I find it interesting that you've captured me, I guess, at literally the inflection points in my business. It's just coincidental or planned on your end. I'm not sure, but really like each time I've been on has been a new step. But as for actually making the transition to doing more deals out of state, it was as hard as I originally predicted it, but it was harder in a different way than what I originally thought. The original challenges I thought that I would face were more personnel related, you know, finding the right people to actually help with management to help do due diligence. When I go down there to actually, you know, we get something under contract, we want to go bring an inspector through the project. We want to bring contractors through, you know, we need to line up the management company, we have to line up the insurance people. I thought the personnel components of it and building the team was going to be a little bit more challenging and finding the right people and and actually developing the trust and, and everything required to actually want to continue buying deals in a new market. That was actually the easier part. And fundamentally, it was just ask people you really, really respect who are operating the markets that you want to be in for referrals. And you ask a few of those individuals, and then the A players rise to the top. And there's the spiderweb effect of a referral network, right? Where you start to get a lot of lines crossed with a few great people. And then those are the people you just worked with. So that was actually the easier part. The more challenging part I found was knowing the market well enough or developing a deep enough understanding of the market to really quickly move on deals. Because I think every single time I've been on the show, I mean, it's probably been the last two years or, or three years that I've been on, I think it's the market's been hot the whole time, right? And originally, you know, I was really, really great at identifying deals in New Hampshire, which was kind of the local market. And I said, all right, well, I know how to spot a deal up here. I want to go down into Central Florida. I should fundamentally spot the deals down there. But it takes a while to really understand the true nuances to each specific market. And basically, getting over that knowledge gap was something that took a little bit longer than I anticipated. And I definitely approached the market or just approach different markets in the, through the lens of just being too conservative. I'd rather miss out on deals than overpay for a deal. And I missed out on a lot of deals that I otherwise didn't need to miss out on because I was being overly conservative because I didn't trust my understanding of the market enough. And I think there's a fine line to be struck between just spending your whole time analyzing markets and not pursuing deals. Obviously, that's not a situation you want to be in. But there is something to really, really, really understanding at a street-by-street neighborhood level what's going on in a specific market so that you know when you're sending mail out and the owner calls you and says, Hey, I'm looking for 80,000 a door. This is where my property is, this is what my rents are, that you can quickly act on it. Because everyone understands today, you have to be so fast when you're pursuing deals. You can't oh, you know, get a call from a seller on a Tuesday. If the deal looks somewhat compelling, like you need to get offers out by Wednesday. You got you to get stuff out to this individual, an LOI, some kind of a purchase contract, some kind of a verbal heart offer, something to progress the conversation the next day. Like If you're waiting from Tuesday and, and Friday rolls around and you're kind of waking, waiting to speak with a broker, you're waiting to run it by your management company, you, were, you, know, you wanted your buddy who's active down in that market to give you a second opinion on what the rents could be. You're probably already behind the eight ball. So for me, I wasn't acting fast enough and I was missing out on deals as a result because I didn't trust my own knowledge of the market. I kind of just jumped out of the plane in a sense, right? And I was like, I'll find deals, I'll learn the market as I'm going, and all of this. And and we did deals and it all it overall it's a success, but I left some money on the table, some opportunity on the table because I wasn't able to act fast enough. So I think the actionable takeaway there is if you're going to go into a new market, 
try and really be honest with yourself and find the line between paralysis analysis and not taking action, but also analyzing market to the point to where you can very quickly act on an opportunity and understand that's how you have to approach the business. Because if you're not approaching it that way, you're going to get, you're not going to compete with the people that are local there. Since you weren't local to this market, how did you find the people that you could ask for referrals? I mean, I just do a ton of networking. I'm a part of a lot of different real estate groups, paid or not paid, and that were, you know, I could throw a, a deal into a Slack channel, right? And say, hey, is anybody operating in the Lakeland, Florida area? And hop on the phone with someone, get their take, you know, have some verbal conversations in that capacity. I lined up individuals in other markets that like I would literally pay to go just drive by deals and take a video of a street, take a video of the property, kind of do like a two-minute walkthrough. And I think taking the approach, like you got to pay to play in a lot of this stuff, right? Like, so for me, I found a couple of young real estate brokers. One of the markets that I was trying to expand into was Indianapolis. And I said, you know, hey, this is my background. You know, one, if you find any deals, I'd love to work together. You know, I might need help operating it. We can work together on a deal if there's synergy there. So trying to establish a higher level relationship, but then also saying, you know, hey, if I look at a deal and the initial back of the napkin underwriting checks out, but I kind of want to get a feel for the neighborhood and the physical condition of the exterior of the structure, would you mind taking 30, 40 minutes out of your day? I'll throw you 30 bucks or something like that, make it worth your time. I was literally Venmoing people in other markets, just individuals to go and drive by and take a, you know, FaceTime me. We we walk the exterior, we can see. Okay, you know what? This siding is actually pretty dilapidated. All right, these roofs are actually a little bit old. That's going to affect the price I might be able to offer the seller. There is two burnt out mobile homes across the street that are kind of hurting the curb appeal. And for me, that was huge, right? Because at the end of the day, everyone's afraid. I think the biggest fear for people investing remotely is like, what's going on with the property on the ground, right? So if you get a sense there, that helps. And then for us, I'm getting a property under contract. I'm going down and doing extensive due diligence like during our due diligence period, like committing mentally to the cost of flying down, spending two days there, spending six, seven hours the first day with the inspector, walking every single unit, evaluating every single major system. While I'm there, you know, the management company is getting on site and we're verifying all of the projected rents. We're verifying the construction budget. We're getting every single service provider that's specific to each component of the deal. We get a roofing contract route. We get our HVAC. Folks out to look at the cooling systems. You know, we do all of this stuff, right? At that point, after due diligence, I mean, it's an absolute, I have no fear in actually closing on the deal because I've done so much DD that, I mean, I've really mitigated that risk. So I think some people just getting on a plane and going down there and doing that, it just feels like it's a lot harder than it actually is. And in reality, it's, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a plane ticket, spend a couple of days, you spend a hundred bucks in a hotel, like commit to doing that. And, and the whole process becomes a little less intimidating. Do you pay for the travel yourself out of your own income or do you pass that into your deal and your underwriting? That's all out of pocket on my end. You know, it's funny. I think some syndicators or capital raisers or, or people that are putting together deals with investor money, they might structure it a little bit differently. For me, it's like, you know, I don't think that should be a burden of the deal, right? Of the investors, of the actual basically an out-of-pocket cost for the deal. That's something I fund on my own. You know, it's funny. It's like I used to think that that was like Oh, it'd be the worst thing in the world if I bought a plane ticket and spent a few days in a market looking at a deal that I didn't end up buying. And I've done that multiple times. I've flown to markets, done due diligence, and it's just the property is way different than what we anticipated and we have to walk away. And you know, you just have to understand that those types of expenses, those types of costs are going to come if you want to invest out of state. I mean, it's just the price of doing business, right? And I think some people just, you know, that makes them uncomfortable. They feel like they wasted a few days, some money on a plane ticket. But if your inspection is, and, you know, we're doing larger commercial assets, so we might have an inspection that's $3,000, another 500 bucks to and travel and to get there. And just like, that's not, that doesn't really move the needle on a multi million dollar deal. Like, it's not a big deal. And it doesn't really move the needle on a smaller deal either. 
you know, if you're buying a $300,000 four unit property in some other market, that's not where you live. It's probably not the end of the world if you go get there to make yourself feel comfortable. And then once you're there, you build a better relationship with the broker, the property management company, spend another day there and network with all the investors, drive the city. And now you're much more plugged into that market than you previously were. And it's an investment in future deals, an investment in future relationships. And uh, once I you know, made that shift, I think I really started putting more gasoline on that fire, so to speak, in terms of looking for deals outside of my area. And it can also be a tax right now. Exactly. Yeah, it's deductible. The specific markets that you're in are Houston, Texas, Manchester, New Hampshire, Lakeland, and Daytona Beach, Florida, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Why'd you choose those markets? It's interesting. And um, I'm probably going to give you a longer answer here. So hang on, I guess. There's some markets there that I know I can physically compete in as a deal finder, as an operator, as an investor myself. And for example, those would be the Daytona beaches of the world, the Lakeland, Florida's, the Indianapolis, the Manchester, uh, you know, Manchester, New Hampshire's. And what I describe these markets as they're kind of, you know, Indianapolis is bigger. That's more of a major city. But the other cities I mentioned are, are fundamentally, they're smaller cities with less buyer competition, with less in the aggregate, there's less focus on those from a media perspective, from an investor perspective, from capital chasing deals perspective. My whole thing, when I go into a market, I, I want inefficiency. Like We make money in real estate from inefficiency. We don't make it from really anything else. We make it from... There's an opportunity that the seller maybe has underutilized or doesn't understand what they have. And as a buyer, we're able to identify that inefficiency and that you know basically just a seller leaving something on the table, and we're able to extract value from that. It's much, much harder to do that in popular cities and popular markets where there's significantly more buyer competition. So when I started looking in Florida, I was looking in Tampa. I was looking in Jacksonville. I was looking in deals in Texas. I was kind of looking in you know, San Antonio, Dallas areas. And that's just everyone knows that people are moving there. Incomes are growing. The, there's more jobs. There's companies moving there. And there's a reason why like Tampa, it's incredibly challenging to find a deal in Tampa. We've done direct to sell marketing there for 12 plus months. We haven't found a deal. Whereas we've done the same thing in Lakeland, we found numerous deals. And the major reason why is you're only really competing with local folks and a couple of out-of-state people. And you know, if you're going to go start a business, do you want to start a computer business and compete with Apple? Or do you want to start a flooring company and you're competing with a, a near-retiree local guy who's running a flooring company with no software? Like Obviously, you're going to gain traction a lot more quickly if you start the flooring company where you're competing with somebody that doesn't really understand the sport of business. And that's the same thing with real estate. Do you want to go and compete with the people doing deals in the Tampas and in the Dallas's, the Austins, the Phoenixes? Or do you want to just go and play a little bit more in the mud in some of these more tertiary markets? So that is literally how I thought of identifying markets. So that's why I picked a lot of cities with, with populations of 100 to 200,000 people. You know, Lakeland, Manchester, Daytona Beach all kind of fall into that range. And it's just easier to find deals. And we know how to operate really well. We know how to, to take a deal from close to stabilize really effectively. We can apply those systems anywhere. And from a capital perspective, people are still interested in investing in those markets because it's still fundamentally in Florida, Manchester being in New Hampshire. Manchester is one of the only states in the Northeast with positive population growth. So if you're somebody who wants to invest in real estate up in the Northeast, that's a pretty great outlet to do so. So all the fundamentals still check out, but I'm more interested in where's my time best spent. And the other deals. So now I'll hop to some of the other markets like Houston and, and we're a partner in a deal out in Phoenix as well. Those markets that are harder to break into, like it's extremely hard to go from zero to transacting a sizable deal in a market like Houston, which is an extremely hot, active, popular market 
with absolute rock star A players on the ground that are, you're just going to have a really hard time competing with. So I said, if I want to participate in those markets, how can I bring value to somebody else who already has the relationships, the deal flow, the skill set to bring a deal from contract to close that has the confidence in their knowledge to get sent a deal on Monday and get it under contract on a Tuesday based on limited information like that? It's going to take me a year to get to that place at a minimum, right? I took the approach of, let me find these people and let me raise capital for their deals. And let me partner in this deal with them as a capital raiser, right? That's the value I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring a group of investors that make their capital raise a little bit easier. And in return, I can participate in the deal. I'll help with you know investor relations. I'll be active in some capacity. So we're compliant with all the SEC guidelines. But that's really the value I'm bringing. Instead of me coming in as an investor myself and bringing X amount of dollars, I can bring a group of 10 investors that are an aggregate going to bring six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars to this deal. It makes the sponsor, you know, the individual who's finding and operating the deal, makes their life easier because they get to spend less time raising the capital. It's a less stressful contract period trying to put it all together. And if there's value there, you can be compensated for doing so. You know, I'm a smaller partner in those deals. I'm on the general partnership and you know, I'm technically an active member of those deals. But that was my way of participating in those specific areas and still developing some relationships with folks there without having to actually go through the process of sourcing the deal and developing those relationships that'll bring you the deals. Because that's the hardest part of this whole game, right? If you can shortcut that by bringing value in some other way, it's pretty beneficial. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. How are you raising that capital? When you're bringing into those deals, what are you exactly doing to raise the capital? I think any experienced real estate sponsor that's doing all of this stuff where they're finding the deals and raising the money, they should be spending half their time finding deals, half their time finding investors. So for me, that's kind of how I try and structure my time, right? You know, I got a I got a podcast where I discuss what we do. I'm really active on LinkedIn and on Instagram. I'm constantly networking through different events and, and sharing my story. You know, I speak at a lot of local real estate meetups. And at the end, I say, hey, if you're interested in investing passively and you want to participate in, in deals led by individuals that are full time and you know, A players in this business, give me a call. We'll talk about it. And so I kind of try and cast a wide net like any sales funnel, right? I try and pull in leads from any all any different direction. And then I work them down. I make sure they're qualified. Make sure they'd be a good fit as an investor in our deals. And at the end of the day, you have a stable of individuals that have expressed some level of investing to you. And when we have an opportunity, whether it's a deal that we're personally buying and operating and raising the money for, or it's somebody else's, we put together a, a lengthy pitch deck, basically an offering memorandum is what we call it, that outlines the opportunity, the sponsors, the market, the business plan, the capital requirements. And we share that. Oftentimes, we'll put together a webinar. So we walk through the opportunity, the market, and usually it's about 30, 45 minutes. We field some questions if we do it live, or we have people send in questions and we address them on the webinar and we record that, send that out. But it's basically a a funnel like anything else. And I like to equate it to kind of similar to selling physical products online or selling like an online service, right? If if you're scrolling Instagram, you probably get all the ads for jump on our email list. I'll tell you how to drop ship. I'll tell you how to create a course and sell a course. I'll tell you how to do this, do that. And that's oftentimes what we do. I don't, I don't do any paid advertising, but specifically say, get on our email list, right? Download our eight ways busy real estate professionals can benefit from passively investing in real estate. And I have a lead magnet. Throw your email in there. You drop into a sequence of five emails. It prompts you to schedule a call at the end of that. And I push all of these things in a traditional business development perspective. I just apply it to finding interested investors. And this is something I'm actively trying to do a little bit more efficiently now, but builds an infrastructure that brings investors to us and allows me to convert them and that and basically leave them on the sidelines and pull them into deals that we're putting together at any given time. Are you doing that exact same process for funds that you're raising for other people and funds you're doing for yourself? Yes. Process is totally the same. I just want to get people into our ecosystem. That's kind of fundamentally what I'm hoping to do. And in deals that we're doing ourselves, you know, we, we talk about it. We say, this is a deal that we're leading. We found, we're lead sponsoring this. We're going to be running the operations. We're going to be executing the business plan. And for me, that story is much easier to tell investors for deals that are in markets that I've proven, that I have a proven track record in. So I've done a, a lot of business up in New Hampshire. I've done a good amount of business now in Central Florida, and we're going to be doing more in Florida. We just closed a, a 48 unit down there, and, and, and we're starting to really gain traction down in Florida. An investor looks at the track record that I have in the, in those two markets specifically and says, "Yeah, you know, this is pretty rinse and repeat for him. I trust this individual to run this deal and to steward my capital effectively." 
Whereas a market like Houston, if I were to send a deal in Houston out to my investors, I'm like, have you done anything in Houston? And I'm, I'm like, no, you know, this is the first deal. We're, we're getting our feet wet. As a passive investor, that story is a little bit less compelling, right? In those deals, I want to give the investors that are interested in participating in our opportunities access to these great markets. And the way to do that is to partner with other folks. So the process is still the same, but we, allow, we, we're, we can bring a more diverse set of opportunities to the folks that are kind of in our ecosystem. You mentioned you get a piece of the GP when you bring that to other people. What does that piece look like? Is it 1%, 2%? I'm sure it varies based on how much you're raising, but just give us a general idea on what that structure looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it definitely varies. And there is a line that can be crossed. And you know, granted, I'm not an attorney, right? Consult an attorney anytime you're raising capital. That's like the whole big disclosure, right? Depending on the deal, there's and it really depends on the need on the sponsor side for capital, right? If the sponsor can raise the money on autopilot, right? They can send an email out to their list and raise all the money. They have less of a need for capital. So they may be willing to compensate you slightly less for doing that or give you a smaller slice of the deal. You know, typically what I oftentimes see in real estate general partnerships, you have, you know, 20, 30% of the general partnership, you know, so of the GP specific equity, right? So you got maybe 20, 30% of that for the deal finder and whoever is really sourcing the opportunity and getting it to close. Probably got another 30% or so for the operator in the deal, you know, the individual that's going to take it from close to really creating value there. And oftentimes the deal finder and the operator are just the same person or the same group. Then you got another 30% or so for capital or for somebody who's going to be a capital partner in that deal. And depending on how much you raise, you know, maybe you're, you have a different piece of that, but there's still the implication that whoever's bringing in the capital needs to actively participate in the deal. Unless you're, you know, you're a licensed uh, capital broker, right? There's implications to being compensated solely for raising capital that kind of violates some SEC stuff. So if you're going to be raising money for other people's deals, you still need to be an active partner in that deal. And your compensation is going to vary. And it's really going to depend on the deal and you know the operator, right? If the operator is somebody who's got a couple thousand units in a marketplace and they don't really need you to help them raise capital, probably not going to participate really meaningfully in that deal versus a newer investor that like literally needs you to raise money <laughs> to get it closed. Obviously, there's a, a different expectation there. But in general, a, a general partnership pool of equity is 20, 30% for the deal finding, you got 20, 30% for the operator, 20, 30% for the capital raiser. And then the rest of it might be more special folks, somebody to sign the debt who has a really large balance sheet and a lot of liquidity to help the sponsor group qualify for the loan. Maybe you have another uh, line item in there for somebody that helped you with the pursuit costs, what we call them in the business, you know, all of the out of pocket costs required to get a deal in a contract. It's not uncommon. You need multiple six figures in earnest money today if you're pursuing 50, 60 plus unit assets, right? So somebody might be fronting that to get the deal in a contract and they're being compensated on the back end with some of the general partnership. So there's kind of different roles, but that's, that's a very high level, I guess, view of how that equity is usually chopped up. For your deals specifically, how are you structuring them? Are you using 506B or 506C? So we've done a couple of 506Bs. And I like to do 506Bs. Granted, the downside is you can't publicly advertise a 506B opportunity. So it's something that you need to keep closer to the vest and only share with people you have a, a longer standing relationship with 30 days or more. And anyone that's participating in those deals, you have to know them. You have to tell the SEC that you have some level of fundamental understanding of their financial situation to make sure they're not overextending themselves by participating in the deal. Like Basically, they're truly qualified to invest. So there's some more legal implications there. But a lot of our investors are people that are kind of right on that verge of being accredited, which is the requirement to participate in a 506C syndication. But we want them to participate in what we have going on. We do a lot of deals with lower check sizes. You know, a lot of syndicators require 50K, 100K minimum. We'll, we usually do 25K. 
so it can bring some more people in. And from an actual compensation structure or a, an actual deal structure, we do pretty much pretty similar to what other folks do, where we have some kind of a preferred return and then a split above and beyond that. You know, a big part of our business is charging less fees. We want to be compensated through the promote because that more accurately aligns all of the uh, all of the incentives across the you know the general partner down to the limited partners. We usually use some kind of a seven to nine percent preferred return, and then the split above that typically varies on the deal, but it's anywhere from 50, 50, 50 to the GP group, fifty to the LPs, or you know to 70, 30, 70 to the LPs, thirty percent to the GP group. Um, that usually depends on the deal, the market, how great the deal is. And what the preferred return is. Sometimes we play with the preferred return and we increase that a little bit to provide a little bit more downside security to the investors. And then we toggle the promote above that to basically compensate us for taking a little bit more risk in terms of we're paying out more in a pref. We want to participate a little bit more in the back end. That's a structure we use on deals where there's maybe more of a risk component to it. It's a larger renovation. There's more moving pieces and we want to give our limited partners a security of high, having a higher preferred return versus maybe more straightforward deals that are a little bit more cookie cutter where it's a light renovation. We're not really doing that much. Maybe it's a slightly lower preferred return and they can participate a little bit more on the back end. A lot of it's deal dependent, but that's kind of the high level structure we use. How do you manage those advertising laws with your 506B and, and having that relationship? And I know you're not in a, a securities attorney by any stretch of the imagination, but just from your experience, does having somebody on your newsletter list, does that count as a relationship? Like, How do you think about that and how do you navigate that water? It's a great question. I mean, it's it's so tricky. It's like, you know, this is still fundamentally a new industry, right? Syndicating private real estate transactions. I mean, the, the legislature was passed to allow this to happen literally 10 years ago. And it's really the last four or five years where this has become a a really popular method to invest. So there's still a lot of gray area, right? And I think that's something the SEC is probably going to start taking a little bit more seriously heading out in multiple years in the future as this becomes a more mature industry. But the way I approach it is I just want to be overly cautious. Obviously, I don't share any of our ongoing 506B raises on any type of social media because that violates public advertising. It's all literally confined to a segment of my email newsletter where I have a relationship with those folks. Like, and what I define as a relationship is we have spoken on the phone and we've talked about real estate investing. Like, We've spoken about what we do with our business. You've expressed some level of interest in potentially participating in an offering in the future. And that qualifies you as somebody that can see that level of an opportunity. Even if you just send it out to your email newsletter, but you got a bunch of people on there that you don't necessarily know, there's some implications to doing that because you're still kind of advertising that to somebody you don't have a relationship with. And for me, if I'm ever on the line of of like maybe this person is not kind of qualified to invest in this, you know, maybe I like to know that if you're going to invest in this deal, that's like less than 20% of your investable cash. If I think you're writing a $25,000 check to participate in our deal and you have 50 grand in your checking account, like I'm not you're not going to participate in the deal because there's way more downside risk to you, despite the fact that I'm extremely confident in what we're doing because there's no liquidity, right? That's the challenge. When you invest privately, you can't go sell your shares a year later if you want to go buy a house or go buy a new boat. Like That's not an option that you really have. If it's an absolute must, we might be able to figure it out, but like that's not a situation you want to be in and that I want to be in as a sponsor. So I only want to select people that really understand the type of opportunity they're participating in and that are able to do that. You know, the letter of the law is like the 30 days, and, and then you can bring them in so long as you're not public advertising and all that. But I like to be a little bit more selective than that too, because you have what's legal and then what common sense dictates, which is for me as an investor, I don't want to get on the phone every time there's a minor, minor problem or we, we report some kind of minor roadblock 
in an investor update because this is 50% of your net worth that you've just committed to this deal. Like That's not interesting to me and that's not a scalable business for me to run. From there, I take whatever the SEC requires and then I almost narrow it down even more because I want to build an easy business for me to run. What have your costs been to set up a, a 506B for your deals? It depends on how many investors that you have and specifically at what states they're coming from. So there's the cost to put together a PPM and that can run anywhere from nine to 12 grand, depending on the attorney, which is, you know, if you're getting charged more than 12 grand to put a PPM together, unless you're doing some massive complicated raise, you're probably paying too much. But after you draft the PPM, you have what are called blue sky filing fees, which are basically fees that you need to pay to record this transaction in the separate states where investors are coming from. And of course, there are some states that just charge more to do anything than others. And you know, Massachusetts, New York, California are the big three. Those are the really expensive states to file or to do blue sky filings in versus like a state like Florida and New Hampshire. It's just a little less expensive. You're going to have those fees right after you close the deal. So depending on how many states where there's people investing, and how, you know, basically depending on the number of states that your investors live in, those costs can vary. But for example, we just did a 48-unit deal. We had a few different states. It was, it was like 2500 bucks. So between PPM and blue sky filing fees, it was ninety five hundred for the PPM, twenty five hundred to do that. So we were all in around twelve k, and and then you might have some ancillary attorneys' fees as they help you draft an operating agreement and some of the more minor documents to help kind of round out the legal package. And you might be in for fourteen or fifteen, depending on how expensive your attorney is, of course. But that's a safe estimate for what you got to pay to put these docs together. And are you using a real estate attorney for this, or is it like a securities lawyer? So we use a securities attorney that specifically specializes in real estate securities. The best thing to do is find an attorney that has a securities background, right? Because they need to be able to draft these documents in such a way that's compliant with all of the SEC regulations. But it's also important to have an attorney that understands the real estate application, right? So they are able to have a fundamental real estate conversation with you about how much capital you're raising, what types of returns you should offer, how to list all the risks of the opportunity. How to list the sponsors and their beneficial, you know, their experience and why it's beneficial to the opportunity. If you have someone that has truly no real estate background, they might have a hard time just from a conceptual and common sense perspective putting that document together. But for us, we use a real estate securities attorney, somebody that, you know, literally his role, his job is drafting these documents for real estate investors. I highly recommend going down that road because there's too much on the line. And it's too expensive of a document to not work with someone that understands exactly what they're doing. Do they have to be in the state in which you're buying the property? Or can you find one that you really like working with and use them for your deals across the country? It can be anywhere. So our attorney lives in Denver, for example. Um, and obviously, I'm not doing deals in Denver. I don't live in Denver. But it's a you know he's drafting a PPM for a New Hampshire deal. He's drafting a PPM for a Florida deal. And there's a little bit more state-specific requirements just as it relates to the entity, right? Basically, what we do when we raise capital is we raise capital to invest in an LLC. And the sole purpose of that LLC is to buy the property. Naturally, you have to create an LLC. You can create it anywhere, but there's different... If you're going to create it in Florida, for example, you get some filing requirements in Florida. So your attorneys should know how to get the answers or have somebody they can go to in each of these states to kind of make sure they're doing everything from a compliance perspective correctly in each specific state that you might be creating an actual LLC or entity in. But from a true syndication doc standpoint, I mean, it's the same anywhere. It doesn't change depending on the state. So that's a little bit easier. That's what's the nice part about doing these deals is you can just find a great attorney and use them for every market. Do you typically get your LLCs in the states that you're investing in, or do you usually get the LLC based in like Delaware or something like that, and then still buy the real estate in in other states? 
Yeah. So we do Delaware, Wyoming, and New Hampshire LLCs typically. And the only reason we've done a few is some lenders, and these are more institutional lenders. For example, we had an institutional lender that did a bridge loan on a recent deal we did. And they're, part of their underwriting requirement, like they wouldn't close the loan otherwise, was the borrower must take title in a Delaware LLC. I don't know. I don't know why they do it. It's checks some box in their systems that for some reason that makes them feel comfortable. So we had to create a Delaware LLC for a deal that we were buying in Florida, where I'd normally just make a New Hampshire LLC because I know it's 150 bucks a year. It takes two weeks to get approved. And I've done a million times online by myself. For me, that's just what I do. I just go make New Hampshire LLCs because New Hampshire is an expensive state to do that. But you know, Delaware and Wyoming are the two states that are most popular in terms of it's just people just make LLCs in those two states every damn day because it just checks so many other boxes. It's cheap to make them. It's a quick process. There's not a lot of insight behind the scenes. There's a lot of anonymity in those market in those cities as well, to where they don't share, for example, a lot of the registered agent information. It depends, I would say. But if you're buying a deal in New York or California or Mass or you know Illinois, like probably don't make an LLC for those states because it's just so much more expensive to have it. Like Mass is 550 bucks a year. I think New Hampshire is 150 bucks, right? So you might as well make it in New Hampshire if you're going to you know make one. But that's my two cents. I think everyone just probably does what they're comfortable with and what they know. The first time I I went to file an LLC in a state outside of New Hampshire because I live in New Hampshire too. I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, this is takes so long. There's so much paperwork. It's so expensive. And I'm like, man, I love New Hampshire. It's like you said, it's 150 bucks. You can do it yourself. It takes literally a couple of days usually. Like I think I always get my approval in less than like a week. So it's it's just so mm-hmm. easy in New Hampshire. So completely agree. Do you worry it or how do you deal with the foreign entity fees that some states have? Since your LLC could be in a different state, I know some states have a foreign registered entity fee, depending on where it is. We have historically made LLCs specific to the market in which we've been buying properties, literally up until this deal where we had to do a Delaware one. So all my New Hampshire stuff, I was making New Hampshire LLCs. We had a couple of deals on a Florida prior to this one that we just closed. And those were Florida LLCs because they were made by a partner of mine on those deals, our deal out in Indianapolis. You know, We have an Indiana LLC. In the future, I'm probably going to start making more Delaware and Wyoming ones just because at some point, right? You just want to model what all the really successful folks are doing and that's what they're doing, right? So I might just start doing that. And this is something that I honestly need to spend a little bit more time understanding thoroughly, basically the risks and rewards or the different implications of of owning LLCs in different markets. So for me, I haven't necessarily had to deal with that yet, but I imagine that there's... Again, it's a situation where Delaware, Wyoming, I know that those fees are more minimal. But I don't have a great answer for that question just because I haven't necessarily had to go down that road just yet in terms of owning an LLC that's doing business in a separate market or separate state. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. 
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. You mentioned that there's different costs for different states for raising money from people that live in those states. Do you ever just exclude certain states because you know it's expensive? You're like, all right, Massachusetts, you're really expensive for me to file in. I'm just not raising any money. If you live in Mass, sorry, but you can get in these deals. Or even do you just restrict it to a specific state? You just say, I'm only going to raise money from people in this state or a couple of states, maybe one, two, three states. You know, it's a really good question. And I, and I would imagine that if your business is large enough to where you have the ability to choose, that might be something that makes sense to do. For example, if I was doing a smaller deal in New Hampshire and we were doing a 506 B or C and we were putting together syndication docs, but the capital raise wasn't that big, I'd probably just raise money from people that I know that live in New Hampshire or Mass, right? Instead of bringing in a couple of folks from New York or something like that, because I have a little bit more autonomy and I'm able to choose. And I think a lot of groups might get to that size to where they have the freedom to make those types of decisions. I'm still in a stage of the business right now where for me, I, I want to, you know, I just want to raise money. I want to get deals closed. And if I have to pay a little bit more to raise that capital, that's fine. And we're buying median of deals where the, you know, the deal can absorb that cost. And it's funny because when you think about it, most of the people that have money live in very densely populated areas. A huge percentage of our investors are Massachusetts based and New York based. And just a function of Boston's got a lot of really well paid individuals living in it. Obviously, the same thing in New York City or now it's on Long Island and and it's just a more densely populated market. Same thing with California. 
everyone that lives in, I shouldn't say everyone, but a good chunk of the people that live in San Francisco and Los Angeles are making enough money to have disposable income to go invest in real estate. So it's kind of a necessary evil. And for me, I think maybe that's something I would consider if the deal was small enough, I had a little bit more ability to cherry pick who participates. But as of right now, it's, you know, I think it's a cost of doing business type of situation. Is it a cost per person or a cost per state? So like if you have, let's just say you have five people in New York, is it the same cost as if you had one person in New York? It's just a cost per state. You know, it's like you get one person that participates from New York, you're going to have the associated costs with having that person involved in your deal. And that's where I think you probably have a little bit more where you might actually start to do what you're describing, where if you get you know, one investor coming in with 50K from New York and he's a small portion of the overall deal, you, know, you might just elect to not go that route or to not have that person participate in the deal. But at the end of the day, I think it's not a large enough cost to really move the needle too significantly. And especially if you're doing deals of scale, you know, once you get to $2 million, $3 million in purchase price, the deal itself can absorb a lot of these costs because the costs are the same on a $10 million deal as on a $1 million deal as a $100,000 deal. The legal costs are the same no matter how big the deal is, right? Which is why we're trying to do larger deals is because all of these all of the legal transactional due diligence costs are a smaller percentage of the overall deal. So it's less of a hit the day you transact in terms of out-of-pocket costs, right? And I think, for example, like we just did a deal that was a $2.7 million purchase price. That's kind of like the line I'm finding as to where putting together PPMs and, and all of these documents start to really become a meaningful percentage of the overall capital required to close the deal as a percentage of the overall deal. So, you know, the larger the deal is, the less of a hit that is. And you know, I think that filing fees is probably a little bit more of a hindrance on small deals, or maybe it's, you know, you're right on the line of it being large enough to, to even go down the route of syndicating the, the capital. Yeah, that raises an exact question that I wanted to ask you is at what point do you think it is worth even doing a 506B? Is it about two and a half million, give or take? Yeah. So that's a pretty arbitrary number, but that's kind of my take on it. I think that's probably where I would suggest it. You know, And we've done a lot of deals in the $1 to $2 million size where we bring investors in, but we just do it with an operating agreement. You know, We spend 1200 bucks, two grand on an operating agreement, you know, well thought out operating agreement that outlines everybody's roles in the deals and how investors are compensated. And you know, we kind of use similar structures, but we don't have to go down the whole route of putting together a massive document. right? The PPM is really applicable if you want to raise capital from a lot of individuals that are going to be truly passive in the deal, that they write a check and then they have zero involvement, you can still put together an operating agreement and, and bring a few people into a deal so long as they're materially participating in the deal and so long as they aren't truly, truly passive. Because at that point, that's when you violate a lot of the SEC stuff. And obviously, again, speak with an attorney at length about this, but you can still structure deals in the way that we're talking without all the legal implications for the smaller deals. You just have to speak with an attorney and draft something that makes sense for you and an investor and, and what you agree on. For me, a couple million bucks, that's probably the line. Otherwise, it's just too expensive. I mean, unless you find an amazing, you know, if you find a deal that's worth 2 million, but you're buying it at 1.3 million, sure, you can spend 15 grand on legal costs. It's not going to, you know, you're still going to make a bunch of money and your investors are going to be really happy. And, but I think it just depends on, on the deal itself and what the actual structure is and how many people are really involved. When you do those, say one to two million or even less deals that are, I'm, I'm assuming what you're referencing is a joint venture. How do you have to think about advertising? Mm -hmm. How are you able to advertise those types of opportunities? In those deals, I don't advertise them at all. Like The way people are finding out about potential opportunities where that's the structure that I want to employ, like I'm picking up my phone, I'm just calling them and we have a longer relationship. We did a deal in, um, in Florida, a 16 unit that was really small. It was me, a couple of partners on the ground that found the deal that were helping me run it. This is the first deal I did in Florida. 
And the investors were just me and two other people. And we're all essentially participating in the deal. You know, we hop on the deal, talk about it once a month for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. And it's a very straightforward structure. So for deals like that, I just called them both up. I said, Hey, you know, I'm doing a deal in Florida. It's got a lot of meat on the bone. You're interested in, you know, coming along for the ride and send you some details and we talk about it and we go and partner on it. Those aren't deals that I'm sending out to an email list that I'm quote unquote blasting out or really trying to generate interest in because there's deals like that are a little bit more intimate in terms of how people are participating. And I don't want to bring somebody in that I don't have a multi-year relationship with and really trust and understand how they like to view the business and what their goals are. Like that's like, you know, close network. Let's all bring some money to the table. Let's tackle this deal. We'll structure the equity in such a way that everybody's really happy. And, uh, and we go from there. I treat it totally different than the syndication opportunities where we're bringing in a bunch of people that are investing 50K and are truly passive. These are like you get a few larger check writers and, and you collaborate on the deal. And then the structure is a little bit more simplistic in, in a lot of those deals. How does the financing work with a joint venture like that? They all have to be on the net, on the debt, right? So it depends on the lender. And that's the tricky part. And boy, that's a constant battle that I'm having with lenders where every lender kind of has a different underwriting requirement for that. The very common requirement that I think people are familiar with is kind of the beneficial ownership form, where it's the lender wants to see anybody that owns 20 or 25% or more of the LLC signing on the loan. There's kind of different ways you can get around that. You can structure the percentage interests on an LLC a little bit differently, but you can include language throughout the document that outlines how people actually get paid. So there's not like a, an exact marriage between the economic interest or the percentage ownership in the LLC versus how people are compensated. You can, you know, again, speak with an attorney, right? And that's probably as far as I can go into that without crossing some lines. But there are ways to draft the language of an operating agreement to where even if somebody owns more than that percentage, but they're not interested in signing on the debt and that's not the role within the deal to where they don't have to do that, but they can still get compensated as if they had more than X percentage. Get creative with an attorney, have a conversation, express that challenge if that's something that you're going to have. But it is a challenge and you need to be upfront with your lender. And some lenders don't mind. Some lenders, I see he owns 30%. I understand what his role is. I know he's not signing on the debt. You know, He's just helping with this component of the deal. We're not going to make him sign on it. But so some lenders are more okay with that and more accurately understand how these deals are put together. But the more conventional lenders, you know, if you were to go to like a Bank of America or a Chase or some more residential type lender, like they might not see enough of these deals to really understand that. And they might just be like, no, 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 it's you know, more than 20%. They got to sign it, right? Have an open and honest dialogue with your lender. Find lenders that are a little bit more flexible and a little bit more familiar with creative deal structures and deals with multiple partners and work with them. And then the other thing too, is you can wordsmith your operating agreement to read what you'd like it to read. You can have a section of the, that where language outlines so everybody's getting compensated. And it's not as simple as this person gets 25% of the proceeds because they have 25% of the equity. This person gets 10, this person gets 20 or whatever. Like Those numbers don't need to translate to what the actual agreement for the deal is. You can do a little bit of work in the operating agreement, find a great attorney that's familiar with real estate and real estate deal structure that can have this an educated conversation with you about this. Like, you know, Don't go to an attorney that isn't familiar with this and try and talk about this because it's just going to go over their head. You got to find the right attorney. You got to find the right lender. And, and from there, it's a lot easier for sure. I mean, I'm no attorney either, but my understanding is you can have an ownership percentage, then you could have different rights to cash flow, different rights to proceeds at a sale, et cetera. So you could, like you said, you can kind of structure it or wordsmith it to fit your specific situation. Exactly. No. And what you just described is exactly what we do, right? Where we have distributions as a section in our operating agreement. How are distributions handled with routine cash flow? How are distributions handled at time of a capital event, which is a refinance or a sale? You know, How is that capital distributed? If there's any fees, how are fees distributed? 
you know, for example, we take, you know, we don't charge a lot of fees in our deals, but we typically take an acquisition fee. You can work that into a $200,000 deal the same way you can a $200 million deal, right? These are all things that you can include in an operating agreement. And you just have to think about all the different levers you can pull as an investor and how you can create wins for all of the participants in a deal. And then you take that rough bullet point list to an attorney and say, let's get this on a document, right? And let's, let's actually translate this to that section of the operating agreement. And then you probably get by a lot of this stuff, like you've mentioned, basically echoing what you just said. How is the financing different when you do a 506B? Is it just the GP people that are on the, on the loans? Yeah, just the GP. Different lenders, again, are going to have different requirements. When you're doing a syndication, most lenders still want to see you bring money to the deal, right? They don't want to see you raising 100% of the capital because then you functionally have no skin in the game. There's typically still a requirement for the sponsors to bring equity. 10%, 15% of the overall equity is usually like the minimum that I see. Again, it's all lender dependent. You know, No one size fits all, but the lender is going to want to see you still bringing money to the deal. They're still going to underwrite you as a borrower. Not, they don't care about your W-2, right? That's, we're past that, but they care about what's your balance sheet, what's your net worth, what's your liquidity, how much cash do you have in the bank available? And they usually underwrite the sponsor group. You, know, you can have somebody on the, on the sponsor group that's got a big balance sheet. They might help you qualify for the loan and they're not really participating in the deal, but that's their role in the deal is helping to get it across the finish line. You might have somebody who has a ton of liquidity because maybe you don't. You know, maybe you got a great balance sheet, but you don't have enough liquidity at that moment to qualify for the loan. So you got to bring somebody in that's got a bunch of liquid cash in the bank or whatever to help you get it across the finish line. But all the passive investors are not involved in the debt process whatsoever. They're just they're signing a PPM, wiring their money, and that's all they're doing. And and typically when you're doing a deal with a lender that understands that type of deal structure, they they're on the same page. You might have that problem if you go to a small local credit union with a complex syndication deal. You know, you might be like, "All right, dude, I don't, I don't know what's going on here." <laughs> you know, go, you need to go speak with a different bank. That's a likely scenario. But if you work with larger lenders that are familiar with these deal structures, they're still going to want to see you bring some money. They're going to want to see a net worth that's equal to the loan amount or greater, and they're going to want to typically see any nine to twelve months of liquidity in your bank account the day you close. So those are usually the big hurdles. And then obviously they underwrite the asset itself and make sure that the asset's lendable. But luckily, that's part of the benefit of passively investing. You're not even remotely involved in that process. You don't have to sign on debt. You, know, you have no mortgage risk. When it comes to the smaller deals, the more JV type deals, what are you bringing to the deal in terms of capital? We just talked about how much you need to bring for 506B. But I'm curious, when you just raise a couple of people that you know really well, what do they expect from you to bring to the deal for capital? I almost feel bad continually saying, I think it depends. But you know, for me, I usually bring like a third of the cash or something like that, maybe 25 to 50% of the cash, usually around a third of the cash if we're doing a million dollar deal. And you know, we need 350K to close it with some operating reserves. And we need some money in there to start our renovation plans. We need some capital in there to pay out like maybe a small acquisition fee or something like that. I'll bring a third of that. You know, maybe I'll go find a couple of other partners to bring a third each, or maybe I find a big partner to bring two thirds. But for me, I mean, I have the option to bring much less than that. You know, I could bring significantly less capital than that if I wanted to. But for me, especially with these smaller deals, like I want my money in the deals, which is kind of contrary to what a lot of people think. A lot of people want to do no money down, right? And I've done all the no money down stuff. And you can do this with no money down, right? You could go raise all the capital and create an operating agreement that allows you to do so. And that's an option. But for me, with the smaller deals, oftentimes they're too small for me to want to spend all of the time operating the deal, getting it to closing creating all this value for there to be only the reward of a small slice of equity that I receive for having no money in it. I still want money in the deal. So I have a good percentage of the equity. So I feel like I'm materially participating because it really does take the same amount of time to operate a 10-unit deal as it does a 100-unit deal. 
a hundred unit deal takes a little bit more, but it doesn't take 10 times as much, right? So if I'm doing a 10 unit deal and I brought no money to it, and you know, maybe I got like 20% of the equity, like that's just a lot of work on a deal of that size to only have 20% of the equity. So I actually kind of like bringing my money into those deals. But if you're creative enough, you can structure it to where you don't have that. If you're newer to the business and you don't have a lot of cash, that's something that you could do. But for me, that's something that I actually seek to do because people like to think real estate's passive. Real estate's not passive. When you, when you do these deals that are larger, where there's construction, where you're turning around a building, where you're turning over units, where you're increasing the NOI, where you're handling the debt, like it's not passive. It takes a lot of time. So for me, I want money in the deal as an investment to, so that I can experience the fruits of my labor in addition to the sweat equity piece of it. I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about the nitty gritty of how you source your deals. Let's just assume that you wake up in the morning and your goal for that day is to find a deal to buy. Where are you going? How are you doing it? Are you hopping on LoopNet? If you are, what search criteria are you using? You mentioned direct mail before. Talk to us a little bit about that as well. If I'm waking up tomorrow morning and I have to find a deal, there's two things I'm doing. <laughs> and it might take me a little bit more than a day, but, but this is where I'm going to start my day. I'm going to go and buy a list of, you know, for example, my criteria, five to, you know, let's call it my New Hampshire criteria, five to 100 unit multifamily properties. I got a pretty wide criteria. I'm going to go buy a list from either Reonomy. I'm going to go get a Reonomy subscription and you know, yank some stuff off the free trial, or I'm just going to commit to spending the money for at least a month. Or I'm going to go to ListSource, one of the two. I think Reonomy has slightly better data for commercial assets. So I'm going to go to Reonomy. Can you spell I'm that for me? To, yeah. R-E-O. N-O-M-Y, I believe is the spelling. But basically, I'm going to go there. I'm going to pull a list in my target zip codes that I want to own assets in. I'm going to filter it down to where properties that have sold in the last 5 years are excluded from that. So no properties that have sold in the last 5 years. I want people with equity that have owned the property for at least 5 years. I'm going to narrow it down to the physical asset criteria that I want to buy in. So for me, like in New Hampshire, that's 1880s to 1980s. I don't want any like newer stuff because that's not really my model. So I'm going to get my nice clean data list. I'm going to export that from ListSource or Reonomy are the two big ones. CoStar is another one, but that's like really expensive. So not for this example, I, I won't go down that road. And then I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find the owners behind each LLC. If the property is owned by an LLC, I'm going to do a little bit of work to actually go and find that person. You can go to a, the Secretary of State site for the specific state that you're looking for the deal. And sometimes a manager, a member, a registered agent is listed. If they are listed, then you have that person. Go ahead and put that in your list next to all of the records that you just pulled. And then I'm going to take all of those natural individuals, those human beings that truly own the property, and I'm going to go skip trace it. So there's a number of services that can do this for you. Um, I use a service called Open Letter Marketing. There's a lot of individuals that will do this. You can do it yourself. If you were to Google, how do I skip trace a real estate data list? There's a ton of resources on this. But basically, I want to get the actual owner of the LLC their address, and their phone number. That's my ultimate goal. And once I have that list, I'm going to go to FedEx. I'm going to print... Well, I guess before I go to FedEx, I'm going to print out a piece of direct mail that introduces who I am. Hey, my name is Axel Ragnarsson. I'm a real estate investor that's active in Manchester, New Hampshire. You know, I'm from New Hampshire. I'm local to New Hampshire. I've transacted a lot of business in the marketplace. And I'm looking to continue growing my portfolio. I noticed you on the property at 123 Main Street. I would love to speak with you about the property if you'd ever thought about selling. Here are some benefits to selling to us. You know, we can close quickly. If you're looking to do a 1031 exchange, we can give you time to find a replacement property. We aren't going to overly disturb your tenants. You know, we're going to make this a pretty carefree process. And you don't have to pay broker commissions, right? That's kind of the language we use. So quick two, three paragraph printed piece of direct mail. Include, I'm going to throw my picture on the bottom with my contact information, humanize it a little bit. 
on the back side of that piece of paper, I might include some more information about our business. And for me, the number one hurdle for direct-to-seller marketing that I need to overcome is I'm a real person. I'm not going to waste their time if they were to entertain having this conversation with me. And I can actually close. Like Those are the big things for multifamily that owners want to see. Like As an owner, I receive a lot of direct mail. I want to make sure that those boxes are checked before I get on the phone with someone. Can you actually close this? Do you have experience? And are you smart enough to understand what the building's worth? And then I just, if I can learn a little bit more about you in the piece, that's great too, because I develop a little bit more of a familiar relationship. So I take that for all of these different properties, and I would go do priority mail to get this out to them. Not snail mail. Like I would go and drop it in a FedEx envelope where it's like it's getting delivered and basically it stands out from regular mail. Like I know some guy that does like sign mail, like basically it's returned unless they sign for it. And you know, granted, he's going after a very targeted list and he can afford to spend that money. But if I got to get a deal, I'm going to step outside of the realm to do that a little bit. So I'm going to send that out. Once I know it's there, I'm going to get on the phone. I'm going to call the entire list, call everybody, reference the piece of mail I sent them, introduce myself. Um, if they don't answer, I leave a voicemail. And then if I have their email address, I'm going to go and send them an email with literally a video that I record with my webcam. I'm going to say basically the same thing that's on the direct mail piece. And I'm going to send that video to them to create some familiarity over an email if I have their email. And it's really those three things. You do those three things at some level of scale and consistency, and you'll find just an absurd amount of real estate deals. But it's not easy to do that. And it's very intensive in terms of the time and the energy and the cost sometimes associated with doing that. But if you want to find off-market deals, do those three things, you'll find deals. So you're sending letters, not postcards? I send letters. For multifamily real estate, I want to be able to introduce myself. I want, to, I want a little bit more space to tell my story. And it's hard to really do that with a postcard effectively. right? I think postcards are probably as effective as mailers for like the small... And I have no data, right? so I, you know, I could be wrong. But for single family house flippers who are trying to go out and get in front of Aunt Sally, who just inherited her mother's house, and she's like, I just don't want this anymore. right? And she has like financial motivation or, or life motivation. A postcard, you just got to get your name in front of them, right? For us in multifamily real estate, we're never buying properties from people who are in financial distress. That's just not, we're never doing that, right? Every time we buy a property direct to seller, it's because they like us, because they want to transition to a different stage of their life or business. They want to get out of smaller assets. They want to sell those out. They want to get into bigger assets, or they're moving out of the state or something and they're trying to debate whether or not they hire a property management company or whether they sell it. But there's no like financial, like, oh, I got to get rid of this, right? So the whole cash offer, blah, blah, doesn't really speak to them. And I want to be able to tell my story, build credibility, and introduce myself so I can do more of that on a mailer than a postcard. Axel has dropped so much gold and so much knowledge for us in this episode. I know that I can't absorb it all just while I'm recording this. I'm going to go back personally and re listen to this at least another time, if not two. And there's so many more questions and things I want to talk to Axel about. So we'll have to bring him back on the show for a fifth time. I'm, I'm guessing he'll probably be our, be our first fifth <laughs> guest. But uh, Axel, I, for I those... I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I, I always learn a lot from you. For those who are interested in, in learning more about you, connecting with you, where is the best place to find you? Yeah. So our website is alignedrep.com. That's for Aligned Real Estate Partners. Fill out any of those contact forms if you want to get on our list and, and chat with me. And then I'm obviously really active on Instagram. So at Multifamily Wealth is my Instagram handle. And then I host the Multifamily Wealth Podcast as well, which is all about multifamily real estate. And we talk about what's going on in the market, how we grow uh, our portfolios as multifamily investors. And um, you'll find more about that on my Instagram as well. So those three places are probably the best way to kind of get in the, uh, the ecosystem, like I mentioned. 
I'll put a link to Axel's website, podcast, and social media handles in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out. I'll also link to the previous episodes that we've done together here on the show. So anybody can go back and listen to those as well. You'll hear how Axel has progressed in his career. And also, if you just want to learn more about what we talked about. Axel, thanks so much for joining me again. Thanks, Robert. This was great. Appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.